Let's pray. Father, you and you alone are the only one who can, is the only one who can speak this morning. Uh, take over. We trust you. We depend on you. We're confident in you. We know that your spirit can do unthinkable things. Your word actually tells us that you can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, which means your capabilities are genuinely beyond our wildest imagination. And so we desire to see you do wildly amazing things this morning, not because of me, not because of us, not because of this building, not because of our programs, not because of our music, not because of our prayers or because of our giving or because of whatever thing we can think of that may cause us to think we had something to do with it, but because you are God and you do as you will and you do as you please, and yet you are a God who listens a God that though sovereignly far above all of our comprehension, you still, as a transcendent God, come to here to meet us, to be with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. And so you listen to our requests. And our request this morning, God, is show up in such a profound way that we cannot deny that your spirit is changing our hearts. This is our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, so First <clears throat> Timothy 1, and what we have this morning, verses 15 through 17, is um, a rather simple expression of the gospel that is revealed to us clearly. So it's not, this is not a profoundly deep truth that Paul's going to dive into. It's some truth that we already know. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason it's revealed to us clearly is because the power and the beauty of the gospel in this text gets cast against the darkened backdrop of Paul's severe wickedness. I should clarify, Paul's former severe wickedness. But there's something that we have to recognize here. So like... Let's take a step back from 1 Timothy and just kind of generally think about what we've learned so far in 1 Timothy. A majority of what we've addressed or what Paul has addressed is false teachers. And his, so, so that's the warning. Watch out for false teachers. And then he gives some instruction uh, on how to deal with them. And, this, and the fact, he tells Timothy, the fact is you have to deal with them. So you have to deal with these false teachers. He gives us some insight into what this false teaching is about. So that's kind of the warning, but what's the encouragement? What's the, what's the positive command, the thing that he's telling the church to do? What's the thing he's telling Timothy to do so far throughout 1 Timothy? And that is sound doctrine. Have sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. Use sound doctrine to dispel the false doctrine. Use sound doctrine to dispel the false teachers. Get rid of bad teaching. Get rid of bad teachers. Get rid of lies and heresies in the church because, not just because we love to be people who kick people out of church. That's nothing, that's not the motivation at all. The desire is God's people were saved by a gospel that God intends to preserve. 
So that gospel is pure and righteous and good and holy and perfect. And we're the ones who believe it by his grace. And by his grace, he saves us. And then by his grace, he enables us, many of us, based on the way he gifts different people throughout the church, with the ability to preserve the purity of that gospel. And that is why sound doctrine is so important. Sometimes, a lot of Christians today and in thousands of years since, since Christ, for, so for the past 2,000 years, there has been a temptation, a wicked and sinful temptation in Christians, primarily those who consider themselves theologians, to be so bent on learning and knowing doctrine that the information in their mind does not translate to transformation in their heart. And what becomes of that is knowledge that doesn't produce righteousness. So having information about sound doctrine in your head, knowing certain theological truths, means nothing if you don't follow Jesus. It means nothing if it doesn't produce righteousness. And I've said this before, sound doctrine or sound theology includes the practice of that sound theology because part of theology is the doctrine of righteousness and holiness and obedience. That is part of doctrine. Sound doctrine is not just teaching you what behavior, what your behavior should look like. Sound doctrine is the practice of behaving like Christ and being biblical and being righteous and being holy and pursuing Christ and desiring God and being filled with the Spirit and being in the Word and being in prayer. And I could go on and on. All of that is the whole intention of sound doctrine. Because if we pursue sound doctrine so that we're a smart church, that's not going to do any good. And we'll see that in Revelation 2. Because what happens is Paul has so far in 1 Timothy, so remember, Timothy's the pastor in Ephesus, okay? So, so far in 1 Timothy, Paul has pushed, 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 pushed for sound doctrine. And he's going to continue to push. And then he'll write Timothy another letter and he'll push for sound doctrine. He'll write Titus a letter in Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Teach that which accords with sound doctrine. So it is Paul's intention, which means it's God's intention, that the pastors at these churches teach sound doctrine. Now, that's really important because you need to have sound doctrine. I need to have sound doctrine if we're going to live righteously. So sound doctrine can get stuck in your head and never make it to your heart. And you don't live righteously. You just got information that's sound in your head, but you don't live it. So technically, it's not sound. Or you don't have the sound doctrine in your head and your heart is misinformed and even with the best of intentions, you will do the wrong things. So it's very important that we get our sound doctrine straight in our heads, that we understand theologically and doctrinally what the Bible teaches. Paul knows that's important. He has pushed for that. So then why does Paul suddenly just shift and go, oh, by the way, I'm going to take a few verses to just gently remind you of how awesome the gospel is. Why does he do that? I think Paul is aware of something that could happen. And what we find in Revelation 2 is that it did happen. What can happen is as we pursue sound doctrine and pursue biblical theology, 
he, Paul's aware that there is a blockade at the neck. That as the information enters your ears and is processed by your brain and you learn sound doctrine, that it's very difficult for that sound doctrine to translate into change in your heart and life. And Paul's aware of that struggle. He's aware of the human nature. Paul himself was a a theologian and Paul himself was a Pharisee, so he knew the law. And he knows exactly what it feels like to have the information in your head and not change your heart at all. Because that's what a Pharisee is. They know God's law, but they don't see God's law for what it's supposed to be. So that doesn't translate into salvation and they don't live for Christ. They don't live for the true God. And so Paul knows that experience. And so what he's doing in verses 15 through 17, and really I could say in verses, uh, I think it's 12 through 17, is, is he is taking a break from the push for sound doctrine and saying, we cannot forget the gospel. Like the gospel is clearly a part of sound doctrine. Without the gospel, there is no sound doctrine. But he's bringing us back to don't forget the beauty of what Christ did for you, which we'll see as this text unfolds, because that's going to be paramount for you to constantly remember if you're going to pursue knowledge that's deeper than the gospel. If you're going to go deeper into the gospel and go deeper into sound doctrine and learn more theological truths and gain biblical knowledge, you cannot ever run away from this simple but true and fundamentally important gospel. And so we see that this actually happens in Ephesus. Look at Revelation chapter 2. To the angel, this is, this is Jesus talking. Jesus is telling John this. So this is Christ himself speaking. Now keep in mind, Timothy was written in the early 60s AD, okay? John wrote this when he was on the island of Patmos 30 years after Paul wrote his letter to 1 Timothy, or his first letter to Timothy. So this is 30 years after the Ephesians received Paul's letter were encouraged to pursue sound doctrine, but then we're reminded in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 of the gospel. Don't get away from the gospel. Don't forget the most important thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ because Christ is our first love. That's, that's where it all started. Don't ever forget that first love. That's why Paul reminds us of the gospel in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And then we find out 30 years later, Jesus has to say this to the church in Ephesus that Timothy had pastored. And he says, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, which are the seven stars of the angels, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven lampstands are the seven churches here. Verse 2, this is Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus. I know your works your toils and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Now let's just stop there. They, 30 years later, are doing exactly what Paul told them to do. They, they had false doctrine and false teachers 
And Paul said, Timothy, get in there, get those false doctrines out of the church, deal with those false teachers. We cannot have anything that's not sound doctrine growing in this church. It is so important. And, and it's like they, they did that because Jesus says, you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles. No one calls himself an apostle unless they're teaching. So they've got teachers raising up in Ephesus that, that the church is going, uh-uh, not here. We teach sound doctrine. But along the way, they lost something because Jesus says this in verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans, sorry. Which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. They fell for the flesh, which was, ooh, sound doctrine. I love sound doctrine. Uh, I love truth. I love the word. And we, we hate false teachers. And we don't hate false, we don't hate people. We hate false teaching. And so we're going to deal with false teachers. And we're going to get false teachers out of church. We're going to get false doctrine out of church. We're going to teach sound doctrine. And they became so doctrinally astute that they, their heart started to leave the very place it was meant to stay, which is in the gospel. And that's where, that's our first love. Christ is our first love. I mean, think about it. The first time you heard the gospel and you believed, you were like, what? And Jesus just suddenly becomes like this amazing gift because that's exactly what he is. And we should never leave that. In fact, that love, not, not only should we never leave it, we should be flourishing in that love. That love should be growing. I mean, the example I've used a trillion times in this church, and it's such a simple, easy uh, analogy, is imagine if you still loved your spouse just, just exactly the same you did the day you got married. Not more, just the same. You don't know them any more than you knew them then. You haven't learned anything about them. You haven't grown in love for them. But man, you are still together. And you read all the marriage books. You get all the information you need in your head. You know what a good marriage looks like. You could walk around and teach marriage uh, seminars and tell people what their marriage should look like. And you should do some marriage counseling. You, you know everything there is to know about marriage because you read all the books and you learned all the things and you talked to all the people about it. But you don't know your wife. And your love for her hasn't grown. I mean, that's, that's what Ephesus did. That's what the church did. And that's Paul's warning. That's why we get the simple truth of the gospel in verses 15 through 17. To remind us that as you pursue sound doctrine and good biblical theology, you cannot leave Christ. And that doctrine is meant to Strengthen your bond and your desire and your love with Christ, which will only happen if you are filled with the Spirit. And what is required to be filled with the Spirit? Humility. Because humility says, 
I need help. I need God. I need to be filled. I need Christ. I need truth. And the Spirit goes, that's my job. And only in humility can we say, God, I need you. And he goes, and I fill you. And he fills us with the Spirit. So with humility, we can learn sound doctrine and grow in our love and desire for Christ. But what is the sin, the most prominent sin that sound, learning sound doctrine produces? Arrogance. Arrogance, because you gain knowledge. And when human beings in their sinful flesh gain knowledge, what do they do? They taught it around like they're the smartest. Oh, well, I know this doctrine. Have you ever heard of transubstantiationalism? Have you? <laughs> right? It's a theological word. Do you care what it means? No, it's not a big deal. But, like, you know, we throw big words out there and, and we kind of like flaunt our theology. I mean, I'm saying we do that, but a lot of people do that. And, the pro- that, that's arrogance. And if you're arrogant, you, you can't have the Spirit filling you and be arrogant. So you need to be humbled by God to be filled with the Spirit so that you could learn sound doctrine. And that sound doctrine would translate into a deeper love, affection, and desire for Jesus Christ. And if that is not your pursuit in life, then your life is wasted. So, we get to verse 15. And Paul says... The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1, 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Okay, so the saying that Paul calls trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And, and so Paul calls it a saying because it was uh, likely a commonly repeated phrase in the early church. And Paul is validating and saying, yeah, that's a good thing to say. That's one of those traditions you guys keep repeating that phrase. That's a tradition we want to keep because it's true. And of course it's true. Jesus said, the very, said this very thing of himself in Luke 19.10. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It was for sinners that Jesus came, not for the righteous. Well, we know that. But Romans 3.10-18 through 18 clarifies for us that no one's righteous, not even one. So why would Jesus need to clarify that he came for sinners and not for the righteous if there are no righteous? Because many, and particularly the Pharisees, believed that their obedience to the law was their righteousness. Which produced in them an arrogance for their own work and saving themselves through obedience, which is not the gospel. So that's that arrogance, not humility. Can't know the truth with arrogance. You, you can only know the truth in humility. And the Pharisees didn't have that because they believed that their adherence to the law was their righteousness. So that doesn't mean that Pharisees can't be saved, though. It means that those who will be saved are those who first must recognize and believe that they are sinners. John teaches us that in 1 John 1, 8. He who says he has no sin deceives himself, lies to himself, and the truth is not in him. And in, to the one who, to us, who do recognize and believe that we are sinners... We know that our own obedience and our own work and our own efforts have only ever produced death, 
And that's what Romans 6.23 tells us. For the wages of sin is death. So a Pharisee can be saved, but they must first admit and confess that they're fully and completely dependent on Jesus for their salvation and not on themselves and not on their work and not on the law, which is really hard for a Pharisee to do because they hate Jesus. And this is exactly what happened to a Pharisee named Saul, who later becomes the apostle Paul. So at the end of verse 15, Paul says, of whom I am the foremost now, the Greek word foremost means first in rank. So Paul's calling himself the chief of sinners. If there was a NCAA bracket for sinners, Paul would be the number one seed. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's the worst of the worst. He's the number one sinner. If we were to rank each other's sins, list them in order, and think about this, like God doesn't do this necessarily. I mean, God knows more than we know. He understands the difference and severity between sins, but that's not even the point. But if we were to, 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 to take all of our sins and then list them out and then rank each one according to severity and then add up the total score, who's the worst sinner? Well, we're not going to do that. Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Bible doesn't give us enough information to know if a certain sin is greater than another necessarily. But Paul's argument is, whoever's at the top of that list, I'm above them. I'm the worst. Now that could be interpreted as Paul flexing his humility. Like, just, like you know, just kind of like a false humility. Like, oh, I'm the worst. I mean, we hear people do this all the time. Like, oh, I'm such a sinner. You ever say to someone who says that, like, what exactly? Name them. Name your sins. That's a totally different question. You know, so it's very easy to walk around and be like, I'm a sinner. Anyone can say that. Of course, we know you are. So for Paul to be like, oh, I'm the worst of sinners. It's like, oh, okay, Paul, false humility. So is it a false humility? Does Paul actually genuinely believe that he is the worst of all sinners who have ever lived? What about Judas? What about Pilate? What about the Jews who killed Jesus? What about the Roman emperors who parade around their wicked escapades for everyone to see? What about murderers? What about adulterers? What about rapists? What about thieves and liars and cheats? Is Paul really the worst of them all? Yeah. From Paul's perspective, yeah. And ultimately, from our perspective, we should be able to say the same thing. Because if we are genuinely introspective about who we really are, we would not be able to see anything but the deepest, deepest seeds of wickedness in our flesh. Every part of us that is not Christ. Now, keep in mind, now we're in Christ, and so we're a new creation, so things are different now. But apart from Christ, this flesh that still exists and still works and still fights and still tries to... Uh, cause you to sin, still deceives you. This flesh that's like, do sin, do sin, do sin, so that you can die, and then this flesh doesn't even go with us after this life. That is super wicked. And so that flesh is constantly at work. And if we were genuinely honest with ourselves, we really sat down and spent a ton of time examining the depths of our own wickedness, and, and we did that forever, by the end of time, we would sit there and go, I'm the worst thing that's ever been made. 
I'm not saying you should do that because that would be an extremely discouraging experience and you are now in Christ. So it's very different. But this is a true reality. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saved while he's saying, I was the worst. But he doesn't say, I was the worst. He says, I am the worst. He's very aware that the flesh still is operating and he still has to fight it. And then now Paul, we could look at Paul now and be like... When Paul's writing this, he's not the worst. And Paul knows the difference between who he was and who he is. But Paul did something. What makes Paul the worst? We could list out all of Paul's sins, and Paul does that for us throughout Scripture in different places. Um, But there is one thing in particular, really two things in particular that stand out as Paul's most grievous sins. The first and most important is this. Paul followed the law. The law is the furthest thing from the gospel. There is no gospel without the law, which is the crazy but yet beautiful thing that the law is good. We learned that a couple of weeks ago that Paul tells us just a few verses uh, earlier in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully. And what Paul's saying is I wasn't using it lawfully, so it wasn't good for me. So law is good because it's God's perfect commands. Of course it's good. But to follow it for righteousness, to follow it so that you earn righteousness with God, so that you can be justified or saved by following the law, Paul's Paul's saying that that is the furthest thing from the gospel. Well, it's not worse than a murderer. It's further from the gospel. We could say murdering somebody is a worse sin than following the Old Testament law. Fine, you can say that. But, but it's not as far away from the gospel. Think about it. A murderer knows they're murdering. They know it's wrong. And it, that murderer could be convinced or convicted by the Holy Spirit and go, Hey, you're murdering? Is not honor God. And they go, I have been a murderer. I've been doing terrible sins. I believe in Jesus. I repent and I'm saved. That's a lot closer to the, a murderer is a lot closer to the gospel than someone following the law. Because a murderer is this close to realizing I'm doing wrong and I could be fixed by Jesus. Someone who's following the law for righteousness, they're way over there. They're not even close to the gospel because they're like, I don't need to be fixed. I follow the law. It's a lot harder to convince someone of that, 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 that they are wrong, that their righteousness isn't righteousness at all, and that they need to, to not pursue righteousness the only way they've ever known how, and to pursue Christ. That's a lot further from the gospel. And so that's why Paul's saying, I'm the worst, because I was the best Pharisee. Philippians chapter 3, he's like, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I did everything according to the law. Paul's a rising young star in the Pharisees, and he, and he took it to heart. I mean, that's why he was so zealous. He says that in Philippians 3, that he was zealous. His desire for God and his desire for God showed up, and we've got to kill these people who call themselves Christians because they claim Christ is the Messiah, and he's not. And so out of a zeal for God and a genuine love for the law of God, Paul murdered Christians. And thought he was being righteous. So Paul's not only following the law, but he's also murdering. And when Paul thinks about that, he looks at himself and goes, I'm without Christ. I'm the furthest thing 
from being saved. So yes, his statement is genuinely humble and he truly believes he's the worst of all sinners. The thing is, Paul really was a bad guy. I mean, bad enough that when he got saved, the church was like, you know, God came to Ananias. He's like, go get Paul or Paul's coming to your house. And he's like, uh, who? (laughs) That guy who been killing Christians? Uh, No, thanks. Right. And then the apostle like, go get Paul. And they're like, who? I don't want to go get that guy. He kills. He killed Stephen. So. You can sense in the book of Acts, in Acts 9 and 10, there's this, this like fear. I mean, not fear, maybe a little concern or question from the believers who are like, I don't know about this Paul guy. That's how bad he was. So we have to, we have to think about it like this. What would you consider to be a more grievous offense to God? Murdering s- some random person? Or murdering Christ. Wouldn't we all agree that obviously to kill another human, to, to, killing and murdering are different, so let me be clear. To murder another human is wickedness, it's sin. But to kill and to murder Jesus is a different kind of sin. Not different as if the sin itself is different, but the the meaning behind it is different because if you murdered somebody, we wouldn't say like, oh, they deserved it. But I mean, honestly, biblically speaking, they kind of do, right? I mean, don't we all deserve, genuinely in our wickedness, deserve to die? Like that's, that's true. You could make a biblical argument for that. But here's the point is not that like, oh, everybody deserves to die is not the point. The point is Christ is perfect. What is more important here is that we could accurately say that if some random person gets murdered, they certainly deserve it more than Jesus does. Because that person is a sinner and their death would be justifiable in God's eyes. It doesn't make the murder okay in any way, shape, or form. But their death is justifiable. The death of Jesus being murdered on a cross for the sins that he never committed, that is not justice. That's not fair. That is an even graver wickedness and sin because the perfect God himself was killed for unfounded reasons. So it's an even more heinous thing. And, and, and that's what Paul did. And Paul wasn't there at the cross murdering Jesus. But what did Paul do? He murdered the body of Christ. He murdered the church. He killed Christians. He persecuted the body of Christ. He may not have, may not have directly killed Jesus himself, but he did kill Jesus' body. And this speaks of the unity that Scripture communicates to us that happens between Jesus and his church. To attack the body of Christ is to attack Christ directly. To harm a believer, either emotionally or spiritually or physically, is harm done directly to Jesus. Jesus said, however you treat these people, that's how you're treating me. You entertained me while you were unaware that you were entertaining me. And they're like, Jesus, we don't remember entertaining you. He's like, whenever you do this or that, that's me. Anything you do, you're doing to me. 
You're doing for me. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it heartily into the Lord. All of your work is in vain if it's not for the Lord. And so doing anything harmful to a believer is, is hurting Jesus because we're his body. And we kind of think of this idea of body as kind of like ethereal, you know, like it's just this idea that's out there. You know, or just like a part of Christ. No, like think about it as a physical body. If I walked up to you and chopped your arm off, would that offend you? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> that might hurt your feelings as much as it hurts your arm. So that would be cause, reasonable cause, for offense. Would, would you be like, hey, I'm not offended personally. But my arm is gravely offended. My arm that's laying on the ground is gra- My arm's offended. So please don't do that to the arm again. No, you'd be like, you're hurting me. This is me. This is my body. I own this. I possess it. It functions according to my will. The brain up here tells this thing what to do. It's mine. It doesn't own my brain. It doesn't tell my brain what to do. My brain tells it what to do. There's no disconnect. There's no separation. There's only absolute, complete, and total unity in this physical human body that is operated by my brain. And if you cut my arm off, that's my arm. And my personhood is directly connected to that arm. So if you hurt another Christian, you're hurting Christ. There's no separation between you and him. He doesn't look at you and go, oh, well, you're a foot and you're a leg and you guys run off and do your own thing. No, no, don't run off and do your own thing. Come to me, says Jesus. Come to me and I will make you whole and I will give you rest and I will fill you with my spirit and I will cause your obedience and I will do things that you can't even think of or imagine. I'm going to do it through you, but you have to be connected to me because a severed arm is worthless. And so we come to him, and then if we hurt a Christian, we're essentially walking up to Jesus and cutting his arm off. And that offends who? The Christian? No! Christ! That's who it offends. So how we treat others is massively important. But it also magnifies this point that Paul is saying, when I killed Christians, I was killing Christ. What's the difference between stoning Stephen to death and Paul hanging Jesus on a cross? And for that, and among many other sins, like his dependence on the law, which is why he did those things, Paul ranks himself as the most sinful. And Paul gives us more insight into the severity of his sin in other places of Scripture. But the point is to show that as a Pharisee, he not only killed the bride of Christ, but he did it for God, and he did it for the law, and he placed himself as far away from salvation as possible by by believing that his obedience to the law was earning him God's salvation. That is the exact opposite of true salvation, right? And then to add to that, the murder of the bride of Christ makes Paul a very wicked man, deserving of eternal death in a lake of fire. That's true. Paul knows that. That's what Paul's saying. And that is what Paul wants us to see. Why? So that verse 16 would be all the more powerful. Verse 16 says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, 
as the foremost or as the most wicked sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's wickedness that ranks him as the most profound sinner had a reason, and it's a good reason. And that reason was so that Jesus could show just how righteous he is, how gracious he is, and how patient he is. The moment Paul was conceived, he deserved death, just like you and me. And then, like you and me, Paul lived out the wickedness of his flesh in this world, thus validating that he deserves death, just like you and me. Yet, during that lifetime where Paul is pursuing the flesh, even though he thinks he's doing what's right, God was patient. And he did not do what would be totally justifiable and kill us or kill Paul and send us or send Paul to hell immediately upon conception. That would be justice. But he doesn't. He lets us be born. And then not only be born, but he lets us live and walk and grow and learn. And he gives us his grace. He gives the whole world, believers and unbelievers alike, a ton of grace. He pours sunshine on everyone. He gives rain to everyone. He provides food for everyone. And yet we deny him and defy him. And everyone deserves death. We deserve it. And then we earned it. Yet we don't get punished for it. Instead, what do we get? God's patience and God's kindness. God waited for Paul. Instead of giving him what he deserved, he waited patiently for his perfect timing to save Paul. And so God endured all of Paul's wickedness for many years so that, so here's why God patiently waits for Paul, so that he would then display his perfect grace at the right time, revealing just how patient and kind the Lord is. We see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes about God's patience, and he no doubt has himself in mind when he writes this. And he says this. He asks a question. As people are assuming that God hasn't killed me for my sin yet, I can do whatever I want. He goes, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So what he is saying is don't waste God's patience. If you haven't been killed and you haven't been crushed yet for your sinfulness, do not presume that God is ignorant of your sin, that God is looking the other way, or that God doesn't care. Do not presume that what is patience and what is kindness to not kill you and send you to hell. Do not presume that as he waits and instead of killing you like you deserve, he waits and instead of killing you like you deserve, he's kind to you and he's gracious to you and he's patient with you. Do not presume that that time where God hasn't changed you yet is God being ignorant to your sin. He's watching closely and he's waiting. Why? So that when he shows up, you would go, I can't believe you didn't kill me sooner. What a gracious 
kind, merciful, loving God who would endure for years the intensity of my total wickedness because he's perfectly patient, perfectly kind. And why? Paul says, it's meant to lead you to repentance. God doesn't crush you because God wants to save. And that's what Paul's life is. The life that Paul lived in the patience and kindness of God, that God doesn't crush Paul, is what Paul is focusing in on in this gospel presentation. He's saying, this lifetime of God being patient and kind to me, well, I ignored him, and I thought he was a you know, I thought I was pleasing God with all my obedience to the law and getting rid of these heretics called Christians. He thinks he's pleasing God. And, and Paul is focusing on that, that lifespan where he is. And he's saying that was devastatingly terrible and wicked. And I want you to see it because with it comes the beauty of the gospel. That's Paul's perspective on himself. And he knew the severity of his sin only made the gospel shine more brightly. And so the, the example I've used many times here, and, and I'll use it again because it's just such a beautiful example, um, is this, this example of a diamond in a black box, right? Like, why is the box black? When a man proposes to a woman, he gets on one knee and he opens a little black box. And what's inside the box? A diamond, and that diamond stands out more clearly and more beautifully inside that black box. Because the black box is a black backdrop that magnifies the beauty of the diamond itself. That's why it's there. No woman ever saw the diamond in the box and said, Wow, what a beautiful box! Right? That's ridiculous. They go, oh my gosh! Right? So, because they see this rock. That's what they're excited about. The rock. Okay? Christ the rock. So, like, the, 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 the black box magnifies the beauty and the, and the, of the diamond. Right? The black box is meant to glorify the diamond. And so also is our sinful past. Hear me. Our sinful past is meant to magnify and glorify the beauty of God's patience to lavish you in his grace and kindness that you do not deserve. And the dirtier the box and the darker the box, the more glorious the diamond. Do not be ashamed. That's what Paul says. Do not be ashamed of your past. Why? Because you're not ashamed of the gospel that has conquered your past. The gospel that's forgiven your past. The gospel that has changed your past. The gospel that is now made you something completely new. That past that I lived in, which is as dirty as dirty gets, as black as black gets, and all of us could probably say, well, my box would be really dark because I had a terrible past and I was a super wicked person. I was really selfish. I did lots of sin. I didn't care about God or Jesus. And You could magnify, and that's okay. That's a good thing. That's what testimonies are for. Tell me how bad you were. 
But do not stop at, I was really bad. Stop at, but then Christ. And then tell me what he did in your life, how he changed you, how he made you. He took from that black box, he shaped out of you a beautiful diamond and put you in there and said, you're now different. I'm not, you're not the same person anymore. You don't have to be ashamed of your past because that's not you. And we are so, we struggle so much with identity as human beings that we cannot separate ourselves from who we used to be. I, I can't do that. I, mean, I struggle with it all the time. I think about things I did when I was younger. And I was like, ooh, super cringe. Like, yikes. There are things I did that I don't even want to. Every time I think about it, I feel like, like someone's scratching their nails on a chalkboard. I'm like, ah, oh, I can't believe that was me. Do you guys ever get that feeling? Or is that my alone? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, like, when I think about that, I'm like, that's not me. That's not who I am. That was Mark. This is Christ. I know I'm Mark. I know I still have my identity. I know I am the same human being. But that person has been killed. And he has created in me a new person. And this new person has a new identity. And that identity is Jesus. That's what the gospel does. That's what Paul's saying. That's the reason he's magnifying the past. To show you that he, he, he killed that Paul. And he killed that Saul and changed my name to Paul to, t- to show you the magnitude of the power of the gospel to change lives. Paul's like, I was the worst of them all. And he still saved me. None of you. I don't want to hear anybody. This is what Paul said. I don't want to hear anybody tell me, well, God can't save me. Liar. He saved me. If he can save me, he can save you. I don't know if this is true or not. I think I brought it up once before. I heard, again, I have no evidence of this, but I heard it for a long time, that Jeffrey Dahmer, if you don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, he was a murderer, okay, serial killer, that he got saved in prison before he died. And I've heard some people explain, like, yeah, this really happened, and I've heard some, but I just don't know if it's true or not. And, of course, only God knows. But, like, that's a dude who literally killed a ton of people. He was a serial killer. You could think, well, that guy's far from being saved. Well, yeah. (laughs) So was Paul. So was I. All of us, without Christ, are 100% totally depraved. 100%. So if you take Jeffrey Dahmer and me, and you compare side by side, without Christ, who's worse? Neither. We are equally, equally dead in our sins and trespasses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. So, so we magnify the wretchedness of this past, this life that we live, this wickedness of who we were. We magnify that not to, not to glorify sin, not at all. So careful how you talk about your past. You're like, oh, I used to do this. It was really cool. That's not a testimony. That's glorifying sin. A testimony is this is who I used to be without Christ until he saved me. And so we magnify and kind of not exalt, but kind of make make it seen or known who we were so that the glory and the beauty and the power of the gospel and the patience and the kindness and the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God are put on display against that disgusting backdrop of who you used to be and he and his gospel become this glorious diamond that makes the background fade into obscurity and all we see is this 
glorious rock. That is the beauty and the power of God's kindness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the magnificent power of God's forgiveness. And notice that Paul says that Jesus did this. Why? As an example. Paul does not mean that, uh, he's not saying like Jesus was an example for Christians. So Jesus, uh, you know, was patient and kind and gracious and merciful and forgiving to others. So you should be too. That's not what he's saying. Although that is true, obviously. Uh, Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So obviously scripture commands us to be like Christ, to follow his example in those ways. So that's true. But that's not what Paul's saying in this context. What he's saying is that Jesus saving Paul sets an example for others who are terrible people. He's saying, I'm the example. That's what Paul's going to say. Jesus set an example through me. I'm the example through Christ. That if, if anyone has an excuse to not be saved, their excuse is abolished by the power of the gospel. If anyone has an excuse to not be saved, oh, I'm too wicked, I'm too bad, I'm too this, I'm too that. Paul goes, doesn't matter. God's forgiveness is greater than your sin. Forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. And God's grace covers a multitude of sins. And God's love covers a multitude of sins. And there is no person on this earth who is not capable of being reached with the gospel. Meaning, what Paul's saying when he calls Jesus an example is this. Paul is essentially saying, no one's too far gone for God to save. Now, you know that. I think you know that. Most Christians know that. But Paul's like, look at my life. I don't just know that. I experienced that. And some of you could probably say the same, like, ooh, I was a disaster. No one's too far gone for God to reach or for God to save. And because of this incredibly undeserved grace and kindness and patience and forbearance and love and mercy, Paul cannot help, he cannot help to reach this conclusion in verse 17 and give us one of his many doxologies that he, that he writes in his letters. And he says in verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What else could you say in light of the beauty of the gospel as it's displayed against the black backdrop that is you and your wickedness? What else could you say? You can't go, look how good I am. Ephesians 2, 9 says, it's not you, not your works. Why? So that you can't boast. There isn't a hint, there isn't an ounce or even a little bit of anything that you can say, I participated, I contributed to this gospel, to my salvation. It is fully and completely the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart and upon regeneration gifts to you at the same time, faith. And with the gift of faith, you are now regenerated. So at this point, you are already justified. And post-justification, you utter words like, Jesus really is God. I believe. Let's pray a prayer. All of that is in response to the Spirit regenerating the heart, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, who regenerates the heart, gives you the gift of faith by God's grace. And with the gift of faith, you utter true things like, Jesus is God. 
Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus conquered my flesh. Jesus will return. You can't say that without faith. And you can't produce faith on your own. And anything that proceeds from not faith is sin. So we cannot produce this salvation. We have no participation in this, I got saved, I got justified. Because if we did, we could stand next to the diamond and go, look what I did, God. God's like, bing, flicks you out of the way. Get away from my diamond. It's so glorious and you're not. Boop, and get away. You're ruining the image. Let's look at who you were and put a black backdrop to it and then let's just look at my work. And let's spend eternity worshiping me because I'm worthy and I deserve it. That's what God's saying. I deserve all the glory, all the praise, and all the worship. I'm worthy of it all. So give it to me. You aren't worthy of any of it. But that doesn't mean, that sounds kind of harsh, like God doesn't talk to us that way. But it's true. And he looks at you and he goes, but I love you. And I love you in ways your brain can't even fathom what love is like. You don't even know what love is. Compared to the way God experiences love, it's a perfect love. And we don't know perfect love. We, we get perfect love. But even his perfect love, we don't treat like perfect love. We abuse it. We degrade it. We ignore it. We mistreat him and we mistreat his love. This is why God gave Hosea Gomer. Hosea was a, a prophet of the Lord for Israel, and he says, marry Gomer, and then Gomer goes off, and she whores. And, and, and God tells Hosea, go get your wife and bring her back. And Hosea's like, oh, do I have to? Like, she's, she's, she's just cheating on me left and right. And God's like, that's ex- exactly. That's how I feel. That's how Israel treats me. They're whoring with other nations. They're not even getting paid for it. They're not prostitutes. They just do it because they enjoy it. That's how wicked they are. That's who we are without Christ. And the only reason you're faithful to God at all is because of the securing work of the Holy Spirit who is actively, constantly, has guaranteed and sealed your salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. But not only done that, but he is the one causing your obedience at work in you, constantly changing your heart and your thoughts and your minds. And getting. if you're in the word, spirit puts you there. If you're in prayer, spirit puts you there. If you obey, spirit's doing that work. Because without the spirit, it's just you and your flesh and that will sin every time. And so for us to find this place of arrogance where we're like, oh, look what I've done to contribute to my salvation. God's like, get out of the picture. Not because I don't love you, but because you're ruining my glory. If you want to genuinely experience my love, my glory, do it right. Know your role. And your role was the recipient of my grace and my forgiveness that you don't deserve. Now worship me for it. And we're like, yes, Lord. What do I get out of this? He's like, eternal joy and bliss in my awesome presence, which is so beyond your comprehension. If I tried to explain it to you in the Bible, your heads would explode or all the Christians would commit suicide because it's too awesome. And, and so we get very little in scripture about what heaven looks like. Very little. There's a lot more descriptions about hell. That's a warning. And so all of this is for Paul to point us to this reality that look what God has done. And if this is what God has done, how can we do anything but say this to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, 
the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. We couldn't love you without you loving us first. That's what Jesus told us. So we just thank you for loving us. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. We're just the blessed ones. Lord, it makes me think of like a child. When a husband and wife have a child, that child didn't ask to be born. It just was. And then what does it get? Unconditional love from its parents. Just a glimpse, just a taste, just an image, just a tiny little sliver. That experience is just a tiny little fragment of the unfathomable glory that you show us in loving us with perfect love. As we pursue sound doctrine, God, as we dive into your word week after week in Bible studies and church and whatever we're at, life groups and whatever, or when we're, in the, when we're in the word on our own, just as we are growing doctrinally, do not let us ever for a moment forget this gospel. Do not let us forget this truth. Do not let us turn from the beauty of this basic message that is the foundation of who we are. That Jesus has saved us and our life should be bent on glorifying him. So as we learn and grow and study and gain doctrine, and gain theological truths and learn information, pray that you would use that to transform our hearts, to desire you more, to love you more, and to pursue you more. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.